Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We continue our series, The Crossroad, today with a message entitled, Who We Have in Jesus. So turn in your Bibles to John chapter 11, verses 17 to 44, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. A pastor told the story of an elderly woman from his church who had died. She had a remarkable sense of humor, and she'd been single all of her life. And so she left a handwritten note of instructions for her memorial service and had written the following lines. I don't want any male pallbearers carrying my casket. They wouldn't take me out while I was alive, and I don't want them to take me out when I'm dead. Well, we all know jokes about growing older and facing death, but it it seems like too much bravado. You know, the jokes only hide the anxiety and the uncertainty and the dread and the terror of what lies ahead. And so let me ask you this question. If it were not for Jesus, what would you have? You know, for millions of people, life is a drama that begins with excitement and hope and ends with disappointment and pain. Every time in every life. Let me ask you again, if you didn't have Jesus, what would you have? We've been studying John chapter 11. Lazarus, a dear and beloved friend of Jesus, has died. Jesus had just arrived after walking about 150 kilometers from the north of Israel to get to Bethany. He waited until Lazarus had died and then walked four days. At the time, many Jews had a superstitious belief that the soul hung around the body for three days, and then after that, as the soul saw the body in decay on the fourth day, it left. There's no hope. And so John 11, Jesus arrived on the day all hope was gone. Lazarus was dead. The house where he had lived with his two sisters was filled with mourners. Many of them were very influential Jews from Jerusalem. You know, apparently Lazarus had been a very prominent man and this had been a large funeral. Jewish funerals would typically last seven days and at such an event, there would be loud wailing and crying. Some would even beat their chests in grief. Flute players would have been hired to play music associated with death. This was no quiet mourning. There were no bravado jokes about death. This was death portrayed as it truly was, the curse of sin. I say this because in our culture, most people have never seen anyone die. You know, we put people into hospitals, they die there. They die in clinics away from us, and the nastiness around death is hidden. Nowadays, bodies are often cremated, and so many young people have not ever seen a body. Sometimes there's not even a funeral. And when there is, we call it a celebration of life. We don't want to think about death. We're out of touch with death. We hide ourselves from its power and its awesome fury. We don't tremble before the grim reaper. We crack jokes. But in Jesus' day, you'd have been hard-pressed to find someone who had not seen death. They looked at it close up, and they wept deeply. Burial also in Jesus' day was different. The person was buried on the day of his or her death. The Jews didn't embalm, and so in a hot country, they would bury immediately. Then, as in the case of Lazarus, they would take the body and lay it in a tomb, a tomb cut out of a rock, form it a cave, and inside the cave room, it was perhaps 10 to 15 foot square, burial benches were carved into the inner wall. It's here in the cave that the body would be prepared with spices covered with cloths, which had spices in them to mask the strength of the odor. And then they would be laid on a burial bench and the tomb would be sealed with a rock over the outside and the body would be left to decompose. And after a year, sometimes two years, the body was decomposed and only the bones were left. 
Then the bones would be removed from the tomb and placed in a limestone burial box or something called an ossuary. And so you can see the tomb could be opened at any time. It would allow for more bodies to be placed there, but in the early days, right after the burial, it would not be opened for any reason because the smell of a decomposing body was so overpowering and it was awful. That was death. So let's start by reading our passage, John 11, 17 to 21. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Martha and Mary, the sister of Lazarus, are at home with mourners. Martha, and I assume from her personality, must have been busy taking care of all the details. And she hears that Jesus is coming and very quietly and discreetly walks out of the house and goes to meet Jesus, who then is still outside of the town. She sees Jesus and the only one thing she says is, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. I don't think she was rebuking him. It's not a statement to shame him. I just assume that all the time when Lazarus was sick, they probably repeated that line over and over again. If only Jesus were here, if only Jesus were here, why, if only Jesus were here. See, Martha knows the presence of Jesus would have made all the difference. She believes he is the difference between life and death. And then she adds something, something that Jesus does not commend her for saying. Verse 22 says, but even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. So why do I say that Jesus does not commend her for saying that? Isn't that a faith statement? God will give you whatever you ask. You know, the word here for ask is the Greek word aiteo. You know, it's a word in which an inferior asks a superior for something, like a servant to a master or a child to the parent. And interestingly enough, this word aiteo is a word that Jesus never uses of himself. When, for instance, in John 14, verse 16, he says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, he uses the Greek word erotao, which is a word that means that the asker is completely equal with the one to whom he asks. It's used of a king asking another king to join him in war, for instance. So to Martha, her confidence that Jesus would ask God is understandably that of an inferior asking a superior, and her view of Jesus places him in an inferior role to his father. And Jesus ignores her statement. He doesn't respond. He doesn't even acknowledge it. Verse 23 says, Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Now Martha gives her second response, and it's found in verse 24. Again, as before, she doesn't fully understand who she has in Jesus. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection of the last day. And then I can almost imagine Jesus walking very close to her. And what he says next must have been profoundly shocking to her. Jesus breaks through her pious misunderstandings and introduces her to himself. Verse 25 and 26, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? At the center of John's gospel in chapter 8, Jesus says, before Abraham was born, I am. In other words, he proclaims himself equal with God. 
Then seven times in this book, the number of perfection, the number of God, Jesus tells what that means. He says, I am the bread of life. Then I am the light of the world. Then I am the door. Then I am the good shepherd. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And I am the vine and you are the branches. See, the I am statements that come from Jesus' mouth indicate who he is. But this one I am statement found in our text today is absolutely stunning. He's telling Martha, don't tell me to ask the Father for anything or tell me you believe in the resurrection because you're missing the most important thing. I am the resurrection. Ah, That was Martha's problem. While Jesus was teaching, she'd been busying herself with food and taking care of everyone. But was she listening as Jesus taught? I think she missed so much. She knew the Father listened to Jesus, but who was Jesus? She knew about the resurrection, but who was Jesus? The very resurrection was standing in front of her, and she didn't seem to understand. So what does Jesus mean when he calls himself the resurrection and the life? Look again at the last part of verse 25. If anyone believes, not if anyone believes in God, no, no. If anyone believes in me, even though he dies, he will live. That's stunning as it is, but that's only half of what he says. In verse 26, he adds, whoever believes in me will never die. I, as I stand before you, Martha, am everlasting life. Look at me, for this is who has arrived at your brother's funeral. (laughs) There are all sorts of people who, who believe in life after death. But hear me, believing in life after death doesn't make it so. I've heard lots of people say, you know, I know that mom or dad are no longer with us, but I know they're watching us from on high. (laughs) Really? How do you know that? So many ridiculous things are said by people after someone has died, but we have no evidence for it. And we cling to some of the most ridiculous and unfounded hopes. Jesus presents himself as something different. He is resurrection itself. Have you heard Dr. John's latest series in the book of the Psalms, Finding Pleasure in God? Well, if you haven't, or if you'd like to hear it again, or you want to send it to a friend, we want to send Finding Pleasure in God on CD as our gift to you. We also want to include Dr. John's series on Psalm 42, To the King, accompanied by a limited edition illustration of Psalm 42 on a magnet for your kitchen, your office, or shop, all reminding you of God's faithfulness. These three ministry resources, all free as our gift. Finding Pleasure with God, To the King, and a limited edition Psalm 42 illustration on a magnet. To ask for your free gifts this month, or to offer a gift to support the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. Jesus is resurrection. Believe in me, he says, and when you die, you shall live. That's only half of what he says. He also says he's the life. So what does that mean? Remember verse 26? And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. What can that mean? In John 5, 24, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Do you know how radical that is? When anyone believes, they cross over from death to life at the very moment of believing. 
me put it this way. You know, once in a while at a funeral, someone will say about the deceased that that person has passed from the land of the living. <laughs> Nothing could be further from the truth. This is the land of the dying. This is the land of hopes and dreams and joys, no doubt. But disease and death destroy all of our hopes. That's the land we live in. And no amount of spices set around a dead body is going to hide that smell. You know, I once heard a motivational speaker say, you know, tough times never last and tough people do. Listen to me. Tough people never last. The toughest, most visionary among us, the, the leaders, those who inspire and those who say we will never surrender. Well, all those folks die. But if anyone hears my word, says Jesus, he or she has already crossed over. You have life today. That's why I can't believe with those folks who speak about soul sleep, for instance. When I die, I will live, for I have already crossed over from death to life. And Jesus looks at Martha and says, do you believe this? It's an incredible thing. But look at her answer, verse 27. She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. <laughs> Suddenly, Martha is in league with Simon Peter in his confession at Caesarea Philippi. That's what we have in Jesus. He is the Christ, the Son of the living God. He is the entire content of our faith. Christians, how do we sum up what we believe? We believe in Jesus. That is so central. Look at verse 28. And when she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here, he's calling for you. And Martha goes in to call her grieving sister Mary. Mary is the more emotional of the two, and Martha is doing stuff. And Mary in her grief has just kind of collapsed. But now she knows that Jesus is here and she goes out and all the mourners in the house go out with her. So I'm now reading verses 29 to 32. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. And when the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. <laughs> Sounds exactly like what Martha said. I think they had been repeating that thing back and forth to each other. If only Jesus had been here. If only Jesus had been here. And then verse 33, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. You know, that phrase, deeply moved, it's taken from one Greek word, and it's a word that's sometimes used in the world of the snorting of horses. It's a word that carries with it a sense of anger and a genuine physical response, something like shuddering with anger or an angry grimace in the face. But however we understand it, we need to see Jesus in verse 33 as genuinely angry. Why is he angry? Well, some have suggested that he must be angry because Mary had said the same thing as Martha. If only you had been here. There's nothing in the text that suggests that he's annoyed about that. You know, others have suggested that Jesus was angry with all the mourners, that it's their weeping, but Jesus himself also is about to weep. He's not angry with grief. He understands grief. So why is he angry? I think a better explanation is that Jesus is ferociously angry at death itself. Here is the Lord of life. Here stands the resurrection and the life, facing his great enemy, death. Like a war horse, ready to charge into the heat of battle, he snorts in his spirit. It's an angry response to death. 
See, I want you to know something. Death is not a friend. Death is an enemy. You were not created to experience death. You were created to live. It is sin. It is the sin of Adam. It is its effects of being born into sin that gives death its oxygen. And throughout our lives, we can feel the tremor of our great enemy. We get sick, and sometimes it's nothing. It's just a cold or a flu, or sometimes it's a chronic illness, arthritis or asthma. Sometimes it's a crippling disease, and sometimes it's fatal. But all sickness, don't you see it, is a death rattle. It's the tremor that reminds us that the real thing is coming. Death is the terror that stalks us from the moment we're born. And Jesus, the Lord of life, snorts like a warhorse in his spirit. And that's also why Jesus weeps. Some have said it doesn't make sense for Jesus to weep since he knows that he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. But again, that misses the point. Jesus is watching the weeping and the mourning and the profound sense of loss that death brings. And he's both angry and weeping at the same time. And that's how he began to walk with the mourners to Lazarus' tomb, for the tomb is the monument erected to proclaim the mastery and the supremacy and the victory of death itself. I said that we must not misunderstand who Jesus is and why Jesus came. He's the Lord of life. He has come to destroy sin and death. You know, someone might say, well, how did he do that in the resurrection of Lazarus? I mean, sure enough, Lazarus was raised from the dead, but it's only for a moment, for in the end, death would claim him again. It's the same way when you pray for healing, let's say. God may deliver you from cancer or from heart disease or anything else, but sooner or later, the illness is going to come back and death will claim you. If he's the resurrection and the life, and if he came to destroy death, how is he the Lord of life? Well, keep reading. Verse 34, and he said, where have you laid him? Now catch this, the Lord of life is going hunting for death. He's going to destroy it. Verse 34 to 39, they said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? And Jesus deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. It strikes me that Jesus could simply have called Lazarus to rise and then told him to roll the stone away, but he doesn't. Roll the stone away, he says. And when he did, the pungent odor of death shot out of the tomb like a demon from hell. And then is the reality of the story. Jesus forces us to face the awful truth of the human condition. He forces us to stand at the putrid tomb of Lazarus and take a hard look at death. I'm so glad the story doesn't end there. Verse 40 says, Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? And so in the presence of the disgusting odor of death, in the place where death stands proudly over its fallen prey, the place where all human hope is extinguished and lies in ruins, in the weeping and sobbing of hopeless humanity, in that awful place, Jesus lifts up his eyes to heaven and says, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. And the only reason I'm speaking to you now is so that everyone here might believe that you sent me. And then a pause and a moment of silence as all eternity seems to hang in the balance. And then Jesus calls out very loudly, shouts it, he shouts it so loudly that everyone could hear everyone by that I mean the dead and the living. It was the great preacher, John Chrysostom, that said, if Jesus had not said, Lazarus, come forth, 
If he had simply said, come forth, then all the dead would have arisen and stood before him. Yet Jesus, the Lord of life, is heard by the dead. And in that place, the place where death plants its victorious flag, in that place where death has always been the master, Jesus cries out, Lazarus, come forth. So let me ask you again, what would you have if you did not have Jesus? Let me answer it. You'd only have the tomb. You'd only have the odor of utter despair. The only reason you don't have that, if you are a Christ follower today, the only reason you don't have that is because of Jesus. Who is it that we have in Jesus? We have in Jesus the one who is the resurrection and the life. And because he is that, he is our everything. I, I don't think you can ever think about death in the same way again. From now on, you can't think about it without thinking of the glory of God and the power of the Son of God and the one who speaks and death bows its head in defeat and kneels before its master. It was Martin Lloyd-Jones at the point of his death that he scribbled a note to his children. He said, don't pray for my healing. Don't hold me back from the glory. The last words they received from their father. Indeed, these are the words of all who hope in Christ. Death has lost its sting. Where, O death, is your sting? Christ has stung death to death. John, let me ask you, it's a personal question. I think we all think about it, but can I ask you, are you afraid to die? Uh, ben, I, I, I know that there are times when the thought does trouble me. I'll, I'll say that honestly. But at the same time, um, I find that as I concentrate on the glories that Christ has for me and the reason for my creation, and that God has called me to rule and reign with Jesus throughout of all eternity, uh, it seems to me some days that it couldn't come quickly enough. And I, I don't want to say this in a way that makes me look like I'm you know, ready to commit suicide. I, I'm certainly not. Um, but on my best days, I know exactly what Paul has in mind when he said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Um, and on those days, I think when um, I struggle with my own carnality, on those days, I want to cling as much as I can to this life because almost as if I think that's all there is. So I pray to keep on focusing my mind on Christ. Thanks, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, The Crossroad, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. Connecting God's people to God's Word in our world today is critical. And Truth and Life Today with Dr. John Newfeld engages timely issues of life and faith so important for God's people to engage and discuss. Special guests each week examine critical issues that impact our lives and our journey with Jesus. So join us on Truth and Life Today by tuning in on Vision TV every Sunday at 1230 Eastern, or subscribe to the Back to the Bible Canada YouTube channel, or simply visit us online at backtothebible.ca. And send us an email at info at backtothebible.ca to let us know that you're watching. If you'd like to learn more or share a gift to support the ministry of Truth and Life today, or any of the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada, would you call us today at 
1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. That's 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.